This episode is brought to you by Kane Crossing. The Q of E report is one of the most important sources of information for prospective purchasers and their investors. And as a result, the firm that you select to perform it is one of the most important decisions that you will make as a prospective purchaser. That's why I'm excited to partner with Kane Crossing. I've actually read through and analyzed and relied upon several of their actual Q of E reports in my capacity as an investor, and as a result, can personally attest to the quality of the work that they do. Unlike any other Q of E provider that I'm aware of, Kane Crossing often co-invests alongside their buyers, which aligns their interests with yours in a way that I just haven't seen anywhere else. Over the past 12 months alone, they've completed 61 Q of E projects with a combined transaction value of over a billion dollars. Though it's worth noting that their median transaction value is about $10 million in enterprise value, which puts them comfortably in the range of most small business buyers. And the team brings big four experience and capabilities. After all, the two co-founders met while both were working at KPMG. But importantly, they're able to offer these capabilities at a much lower price than a big four provider ever could. Kane Crossing is offering a special discount to listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to canecrossing.com, Kane is spelled C-A-Y-N-E, and scroll down to the contact form on their homepage. Enter the offer code TRENCHES, and you will get a full $2,000 off of your Q of E engagement with them. Again, that is canecrossing.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches. This is an episode that I am particularly excited to share with you, mostly because it directly addresses many of the questions that I've been asked very frequently over the past six months or so. In case you couldn't tell by the title, this episode is all about the current state of the debt markets, how pricing has changed, how credit availability has evolved, what risks banks are no longer willing to underwrite, how their diligence processes have changed, how non-price terms have changed, and so on. Unlike many of our other episodes, this is a discussion that is highly specific to the time in which it was recorded, so I'll mention that this was recorded in December of 2022. To help me better understand the current state of the debt markets, I reached out to Corey Kaiser and Tim Eaton, both of whom work at TD. Corey is Vice President of Commercial Banking and has been with TD for over 21 years, and Tim is an Associate Vice President who has been with TD for 23 years. In both cases, the focus has been, and continues to be, on lending to lower middle market private companies, not just to finance their acquisitions, but also to finance growth, working capital, and recapitalizations, just to name a few. Given how quickly the debt markets seem to be evolving these days, I hope this episode helps to answer a few of the FAQs that you might have yourself. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation on the state of the debt capital markets. Tim and Corey, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys because over the past six months or so, questions about the changes in the credit market have been among the most frequently asked questions. So we're recording this in December of 2022, and it's it's important for us to put a timestamp here because this episode is, is more specific to the time period in which it's being recorded than the average episode. Um, so maybe an interesting place for us to start would just be if you guys could give us just your your 
general take on the current state of lower middle market credit. And when I say lower middle market, I'm referring to companies that are some combination of $30 million in revenue or less, $5 million in EBITDA or less, 100 employees or less, somewhere in that ballpark. So can you just give us your take on the current state of lower middle market credit? And importantly, can you contrast it to, say, six to 12 months ago? Maybe that's a great place for us to start. Amazing. Thanks, Steve. It's Corey here. Maybe I'll, I'll take the first stab at this one, but I think you've done a good job uh, level setting uh, with your listeners here, uh, especially as it relates to the timeline. Um, what I'm going to do here is look maybe in the rearview mirror to get us kickstarted here, but also talk about where we're at today and what may be ahead um, uh, as short as a, a month or a few weeks from now. We're really at an inflection point, um, uh, perhaps. So up until now, the last couple of years, if I talk about the pandemic or um, what we've lived through in the last two to three years, uh, it's been great for our business, Steve. Um, uh, I'll start with deposit volumes. Our customers have been flush with cash. Our, um, we've seen a lot of liquidity hit the market with government aid um, or funds that may uh, have sat on a balance sheet rather than um, being deployed in the economy as we um we saw slower levels of activity, especially at the outset of the pandemic. So that's really helped our customers um, generate some liquidity or some buffer in their balance sheet. So that's that's been good for our business. Also on credit volumes, um, it's been the best of both worlds from, from our perspective. Um, when you talk about good M&A activity, rising asset values, low interest rates, strong economic growth, strong economic drivers, especially in the last year to two. Um, that has meant a very strong credit growth in our book. And it had the added benefit of having, um, we've seen great portfolio quality. We haven't seen our credit quality, our credit portfolio really be compromised. And I should knock on wood when I say this, Steve, but uh, overall, it's been very good times for our business and very good times uh, for, for many of our customers. So getting to your question, the, the current state, and, and I use the word inflection point as I, as I think about this, because I get asked this question a lot. Um, we've all sat through economic presentations. We've all read the press about the talk of, um, is a recession coming? Is it around the corner? How mild is it gonna be? Can the Bank of Canada facilitate a soft landing? Uh, we answer these questions um, in, in the day to day. Um, that's all against the backdrop of um, significant interest rate increases i.e. 400 basis points or more uh, just in the last year. So that's going to be a stress. If we haven't seen it already, it's going to be a stress for, for any borrowers uh, in the near term. But all that said, where are we at today? I haven't seen what I would consider substantive or material changes in, in the credit market uh, for, your, um, for your listeners, for those uh, lower mid-market borrowers. Um, most of the banks just reported their Q4 numbers. Um, most of them are reporting really solid, strong growth in um, mid-market commercial lending. Uh, and apparently they have an appetite for further growth. I know I've just got my goals for fiscal 23 and uh, there's certainly an incentive for us to continue uh, growing our books. So there is an appetite there for further growth uh, in the bread and butter mid-market commercial lending space. 
I've started to see some data come out um, that mid-market M&A activity is slowing. Um, it's declined in recent months. I, I mean, I'm just one uh, one individual from one office here in downtown Toronto, but uh, we do still see a solid pipeline of activity uh, and many transactions to close, especially as we enter um, uh, 2023 here. So I'm reasonably optimistic um, that, that the appetite and the growth will be there as we look forward. So uh, if, you're, if your observation, Corey, is that the lower middle market is kind of more similar than it is different relative to 12 months ago. Is that specific to the lower middle market or does that change as you move up market? So for example, uh, are the credit markets materially different for you know what I'll label as mid-market companies, let's say $100 million or more? Good question. And maybe I'll hand the mic to Tim here in a second. But overall, I would say no, we haven't seen it yet. Um, uh, and and we deal with companies, say, from $5 million in revenue to uh, $200 million in revenue. So we really haven't seen that, um, uh, that pivot yet. But Tim, maybe you want to comment especially. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Um, no, I would agree. And again, you mentioned just the, the one data point. And of course, I'm same bank, same office. But um, the team I oversee focuses on companies with revenue of um, 50 to generally about $150 million can be a little bit higher. And I haven't seen any slowdown, if anything, um, you know, it's been as steady as ever. So um, lots of activity, um, still lots of opportunities for companies to, to find um, uh, buyers that are looking to come in and, and purchase. And I think there's lots of room to find lenders that are willing to support those purchases. So maybe we can dig into some specifics. Um, and if the general sentiment is that things are more similar than they are different relative to six to 12 months ago, maybe you guys can answer this question in the context of, um, I should say, on a more forward-looking basis. So obviously, interest rates are rising. Obviously, inflation is at you know 40 to 50-year highs. There's geopolitical unrest in Europe, obviously, you know, question marks vis-a-vis -vis whether or not we're in a recession or entering a recession. Um, I want to ask you guys about how lenders think about specific terms and conditions of the loans that they're willing to offer to prospective purchasers of businesses. That, that's kind of where I want to focus for now. So hopefully we can go term by term here. So starting out, I'd love to know um, how you guys think about the quantum of debt, just the absolute number of dollars that you're willing to offer to partly fund buyout transactions and whether that's similar or different to your answer 12 months ago. Yeah, that's probably good for me. Just um, I'm a little bit closer on that. So I think I, I wouldn't really expect much has changed with the, the quantum that we're looking at, in particular, um, where we'd be for percentage loan to value. Um, where I would see it might come into play a bit more is just where a purchaser's view would be on the appropriate multiple that they're looking at as far as um, what they're buying or, or where we may, uh, if we're looking at a lender's view of that multiple and can we be comfortable that that's a steady state number. Um, in, in acquisition financing, as you're aware, generally we're looking at a percentage of um, the multiple over EBITDA, the, the EV multiple that people are looking at. So I think as that moves, that can affect the, the nominal quantum that we're looking to, to provide, but as a percentage of loan to value, I don't think there's been much. Um, a few specific industries, maybe you've seen a lower of lowering of purchase price multiples, um, but I haven't seen a ton of it change yet. But that's the one spot that I would say, you know, if I'm considering where things could go, um, could we see the, a softening in some of the multiples that people are willing to uh, pay? And, and then that would have a correlation into um, how much we'd be willing to lend. 
But if you guys were willing to, let's just kind of pick conservative numbers. Let's say that you were willing to lend, put two times leverage on a deal. Said another way, the amount of debt that a purchaser raises is roughly two times larger than the, the company's EBITDA. If 12 months ago, you were willing to put you know, two or three times leverage on a deal and say inflation continues, interest rate rises continue, we do enter a recession. Are you still willing to put two to three times leverage on a deal, you know, six to 12 months from now? Yeah, I think if we're focused specifically on the leverage, um, yes, I would say that that holds true. I think, um, and maybe you'll get into it as far as other specific questions if you're going down there on um, where debt serviceability might gate. But if you're speaking to leverage, um, we're willing to do 50 to 60% of the purchase price. And, and maybe it's the right time to delineate between you know, the, the lower mid-market and the upper mid-market. Um, on the smaller uh, acquisitions, we may look at more of a, a nominal uh, level of leverage that we'd apply there. And, and I don't think anything's really changing there. I think as we look at the larger, it's more of a percentage of that EBITDA multiple that people are looking to uh, expend. And, and we're still at the 50 to 60%, I would say, in the market, um, looking at, uh, at the larger deals when you're measuring as a percentage of EV. How about covenants? Are lenders generally getting a bit more restrictive on covenants as they look forward six to 12 months or are things more similar than different in that respect as well? I'd say the latter. Um, I really haven't seen a change in uh, or a broad change in how covenants are being looked at. Um, obviously it's deal specific, right? Which covenants we're thinking about, but if we're looking at what is the overall market considering as far as is there a tightening, am, am I finding when I'm out there competing for a deal, um, am I really tightening and still finding a chance to win? Um, no, I, I'd say it's as competitive as ever amongst banks. And you're always thinking of, are these covenants necessary? Um, are they adding value? And um, if they're not, then you have to step back and, and be aware that somebody else might be willing to do it without that covenant. So, um, so I, I think the quick answer is no, not really. How about pricing? I mean, look, I think from a from an absolute uh, interest rate perspective, obviously debt is more expensive today than it was twelve months ago. Um, and and I'll just I'll just make up a spread here. So apologies if this is completely inaccurate. But let's say that twelve months ago you were lending at prime plus three percent, right? Three percent is is the spread that I'm making up. Um, well, if you're still lending at prime plus three percent today obviously the interest rate has gone up because the base rate has gone up. My question to you is in that spread. So if you were lending at a spread of prime plus three 12 months ago, what does that spread look like today? And what might need to happen for that spread to increase six to 12 months from now? So maybe I'll start with the last part of the question there as far as what might need to happen. Um, I think a, a real softening of liquidity. Um, you think back to... Um, the crisis that we had, uh, the liquidity crisis, that's where I've seen, you know, I've been lending for 23 years. And um, the one time where I've really seen a drastic movement was then it's, it's really a fundamental shift in the market that's going to drive that change. I don't tend to see big shifts in the spread when you see the types of movement that we're seeing just in rates right now. Because um, I do like the way you broke that out. Obviously, um, overall rates, aggregate rates are up. But the spread that the bank's charging, I'm not really seeing a ton of movement yet on where that would be. And, and for some of the larger deals, you're seeing um, uh, pricing tiers. Um, and we might see the upper or lower bounds of those tiers change from time to time. Um, you know, if competition's really um, swayed, 
I'm not seeing a, a real change in your upper and lower bounds of pricing tiers on the deals that uh, are in market right now. Okay. So the absolute value of pricing or the absolute you know, interest rate being paid is higher, but that's more a function of the base rate rising as opposed to the spread widening. Is that an accurate summary? It is. Yeah. And I think for, I, I think some of your listeners would be in the sponsor space. And I think there, what I tend to find is I'm seeing a lot more people putting emphasis on um, wanting to know that they have appropriate headroom to their financial covenants or um, looking at amortization and what can we do versus um, really trying to hammer down on pricing today. So one thing that I'm seeing, I mean, the, the next two questions I will color with my own view as an equity investor. Um, and I, I'm curious to see how the equity investor's view differs from the, the debt investor's view. So with the absolute interest rates increasing as a result of the base rate increasing, naturally with the same level of debt, I'm seeing more and more um, free cash flow being dedicated solely to debt service. Um, do you guys have, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, acceptable or market um, percentages of free cash flow dedicated to debt service? And does your view of what that number should be change if you think that we're heading into a recession six to 12 months from now? So, yeah. So, yes, there is a, a generally accepted range and it tends to be, call it, um, you know, if, you, if you're looking at a, a fixed charge coverage or a debt service, you're somewhere in a, a 110 to a 120 or 125, depending on, on what you're buying, what industry and, and some of the terms. Um, but that's more on a covenant. And then obviously you want some some headroom above there. So it's no real change to the thresholds of covenants we're seeing. Um, what I would say, though, is... Um, I probably as much from your perspective as it would be from a lender's, I would say on where your comfort is against that covenant in the headroom that you're okay with. And it really, I think right now comes down to, you know, what's a reasonable sensitivity or shock to your performance um, that I can handle. And in this case, the sensitivity is going to be, uh, one of them is going to be interest rates, as you said. So if we've seen the, the type of movement that Corey mentioned earlier, and there's the chance that you could foresee that there could be that again, whether or not we believe it's coming or not, there's, we've seen greater movement. I probably need to be sensitizing a little bit more for potential interest rate movement, which means I need to be comfortable that you've got a little bit more headroom on your debt serviceability than I might have 12 months ago. How about the, the types of analysis or the model cases or assumptions that you want to see from a prospective borrower? So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. As an equity investor, you know, now more so than 12 months ago, I really want to understand the model's recession case, which is, hey, you know, what does this company look like in a prolonged recession? Um, I'm spending a lot more time on that now than I was 12 months ago. Maybe that tells you all you need to know about me as an equity investor, that notwithstanding. How are you guys thinking about that? Is the types, uh, the type of analysis that you want prospective borrowers to perform, has that changed at all? Are you underlining or highlighting the, you know, downside cases? How has that changed, if at all? Probably more the latter on that. I don't think we're really asking for a whole lot more from what you would be providing, Steve, as um, in your model. Um, as you always would have been looking for in an acquisition, we're going to be looking for a working model that has at least a quarterly breakdown um, for the last year and, and quarterly projected um, so that we really understand how those covenants have been in the last year and going forward. Um, it's great if uh, I, I think for somebody who's preparing something for a lender, if you can go out of your way to show that you have an understanding of where those covenants might be, um, particularly if you're updating your model after you've come to some terms with your lender on what your term sheet might look like. 
um, being able to show that movement and showing your own thoughts on um, what you would actually be sensitizing for and, and how you can show in a sensitized scenario. That's, that's really helpful. I, I think we're obviously gonna be doing our own analysis ourselves as well. Um, if anything, I guess the one thing we might be asking for more is just probably going deeper into understanding um, what the right uh, sensitivities or adjustments would be and, and getting that from you. So it's more on the um, discussion and analysis component and probably the, the depth of questions that we'd be asking looking at your model and your other information than it would be about providing a different form of model. Over the past 12 months or so, with respect to the loans that you've issued to fund lower middle market buyout transactions, um, at the risk of putting you on the spot, what's your best estimate for the, uh, what percentage of the total capital structure was represented by debt? So that's more backward looking. And then on a forward looking basis, how do you think that number might change, let's say 12 months from now, as, as best as you can tell? Yeah, no, I don't think it's too much on the spot. I mean, generally um, in this space, uh, you're, you're generally trying to find as much debt as you can. So I think it's been a fairly narrow band for majority of deals that we've seen. So you're generally 50 to 60% of your overall cap table. Um, I think what I have seen is more and more for sponsored transactions. This means measuring off what I would say to be your most recent last 12 month reporting period. And, and maybe even the highest level of EBITDA that that company has seen ever. Um, I think that's probably been the spot that we've moved the most is just um, what we're measuring off of. But the 50 to, to 60%, I think, is, is fairly consistent. Um, I have seen in the past number of years that there's been a creep with how much of a percentage in that 50 to 60 is covered by senior debt. Um, I know there's lots of cases where I would see you know, that whole amount of 50 to 60 is, is senior debt and not just like a unitrosh scenario, but, but pure senior. I think what I'm starting to see now is some more discussions creeping in with respect to, you know, maybe maintaining that same 50 to 60% cap, but having some more subordinated debt in there, whether it's a half turn or a full turn, making up that structure. Um, and I could very much see that becoming more prevalent now, because that's where we were before. If I went back kind of three, four years ago um, to get to that 60% level, there was generally at least some form of sub debt there. Uh, I think I could foresee us getting back there again. Maybe one one quick follow up to that question is because uh, a lot of folks listening to this have perhaps never raised debt before. Maybe they're a company that's never taken on leverage. Maybe they're a first time buyer. Um, how should they think about at a general level how much debt to put on a deal in today's environment? So on the more aggressive side, just like getting a, a mortgage for your house, <laughs> you might just pull five banks and take the highest number, right? Whoever's willing to lend you the most. That's certainly on the more aggressive side. On the more conservative side, maybe you run a model, maybe you run a recession case in a model and you raise an amount of debt that would still keep you onside from a covenant perspective in a recession. So th there's a spectrum of risk and return. Um, I suspect that the right answer is somewhere within those two polar opposites. But if you're speaking to somebody who's never capitalized an acquisition before, they know they want to put some debt on it, but they're questioning how much do I put on this thing? Are there any rules of thumb, best practices, ways that they should think about how much debt to put on any given acquisition? Yeah, I think um, particularly if you're coming in and, and in, uh, in an acquisition where you, you're trying to get your head around understanding um, what those risks are and you may not have, uh, you, you haven't been running that company for the last you know, five, seven years. So I think starting out with 
the right type of sensitivities in your model is accurate. But I think a rule of thumb is you generally want at least 20% headroom to your financial covenants to feel comfortable that, um, you know, a, a shock to your revenue that can fall into your EBITDA is, is going to be something that you can handle without really coming up against your covenants and having some concerns on where your financing might be. Um, you might want that to be a little bit more if this is an industry where you could foresee um, some greater shocks. I think the smaller the company, um, the less of a shock to revenue it takes to really um, hit in at, at your EBITDA. So um, those are things I think I would consider. This episode is brought to you by Warren Coughlin, CEO, coach, and founder of Jumpstart Coaching. Now, I wanted to partner with Warren because one of my biggest regrets across my seven years as a CEO was not hiring a coach. And to the best extent possible, I want to prevent others from making that same mistake. Warren focuses exclusively on coaching CEOs running small and medium-sized businesses and has been doing so for over 20 years. And what I particularly love about Warren is the structured approach that he takes to working with CEOs, particularly within those first 90 days of the engagement to ensure that the foundation being built upon is a solid one. Within those first three months, he will help you establish a scorecard containing all of your key numbers in a single place. He'll help you build out a high-performing leadership team, and he'll share with you a proprietary tool to organize your execution plan, which will clearly outline who should do what by when. Best of all, working with Warren is effectively risk-free. If at the end of those first three months you are not happy with the direction of the business, he will give you your money back. If that doesn't say confidence, I don't know what does. On top of all of that, Warren is also offering $3,000 off of his coaching program for listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to warrencoglin.com forward slash trenches to learn more. Coglin is spelt C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. So it sounds to me like, I mean, kind of um, putting a bow on everything that we've discussed thus far, certainly uh, credit at least in the lower middle market, remains pretty robust and has been, in a way, kind of insulated from the more turbulent environment that we've seen, let's say, in public equity markets. So, uh, Corey, maybe I can go to you on this one. Can you talk to us just about how competitive the the typical or average deal is in the lower middle market from a credit perspective? Um, you know, the number of lenders against which you might be uh, bidding, so to speak, has that changed over the past 12 months? If you could just speak to how competitive the market is to lend to uh, companies of this size. Yeah, great question, Steve. Uh, and again, you, you level set right off the top that uh, the timing is so important here. So my answers may only be good for today, but we've seen a very robust, very competitive market uh, here for the last few years. It's not uncommon for us if we're pitching on a deal to face uh, face or stare down three or four term sheets from other banks too, and be right in the mix with, um, with our competition there. So very uh, healthy appetite for credit growth. As I might have mentioned earlier, uh, all of our competition are seeking growth. They're seeing growth. They're reinvesting in the business. The the, the environment has been there in the rearview mirror um, uh, for uh, really substantial uh, growth in the credit markets, um, uh, and, and we're certainly seeing that. Um, but our times about to change. I, 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 a case could be made for that. I don't know what's around the corner, but I've been doing this for over 20, 20 years now, just like Tim. 
I lived through 08, 09. However short term that was, it was a crisis. It impacted our markets. And what we saw there um, was a divergence of um, uh, approaches by uh, the banks on the street as to how they they coped with that um, um, that turbulence. So some banks, if we enter a recession, if we enter greater uncertainty, and you hit on it with the geopolitical tension, uh, the upheaval in the equity markets, if we hit a recession here, especially, uh, you might see um, banks take on different appetites uh, when they look at lower mid-market credit growth. Um, I might take a more glass half full uh, approach that um, um, a recession can be a great opportunity for an ambitious lender, provided you understand the risks, you have comfort in the management, you have comfort that this is a sustainable, viable business. This is a great environment for a good lender willing to do that extra due diligence um, it, to maybe gain some market share at the expense of uh, a competitor that uh, may have a lesser appetite for growth. So my, my advice to your listeners, Steve, uh, if they're looking for debt right now, uh, as you've heard Tim speak at, at length, um, the environment today really hasn't changed vis-a-vis -vis, uh, six months or a year ago, but we really don't know what's around the corner. Talk to your lender in advance to gauge their appetite. Ask them detailed questions. They should be able to speak to uh, what the appetite for growth is out there. Surround yourself with the right experts, whether it's now or later or uh, 12 months ago, the right accountant, the right lawyer who's on your side, their interests are aligned with yours. Um, that's foundational advice that I can't stress enough. And I'm speaking regu regularly to our clients about. And if necessary, talk to another lender. Um, again, uh, lenders are, are heavily incented to grow their book. Um, my goals haven't changed for this year. So if you're uh, interested in uh, growing, your, growing your credit with your lender and you're not getting the right comfort there, um, open up your Rolodex, talk to, uh, talk to your advisors, talk to other lenders, see what else is out there. So a very common financing mechanism in the lower middle market um, when acquiring a business is seller debt. Um, effectively deferred purchase price that is paid for via the operating cash flows of the company. I'm curious, how do senior lenders like banks think about the inclusion of seller financing in, in any given transaction? And for purposes of this question, we can assume that it's always subordinated to the bank's um, loan. Are there any instances in which you might, in which you might like push back on a prospective purchaser looking to add a, a seller note into a deal? And if so, what what might that situation look like? Yeah, maybe I'll I'll take that one, Steve. Um, and I think you caveated it quite well, actually, on the the subordinated. So that way, um, as a lender, I don't have to worry about all my my takes on how it needs to look. So yeah, in that scenario where it is subordinated, and, and let's assume it's subordinated under terms that that makes sense for a lender, um, I'd say generally it's looked at in a positive light. Um, you know, in this space, uh, successful companies often tied to more of individuals who would be departing, at least in some part. And I think while you're likely having them on through some form of an employment contract, if that makes sense, but having a vendor continuing to be tied to the company post-closing financially is a great way to ensure that that original individual is uh, vested in continuing to see the success of that business through this transitionary period. So I, I view that as a plus. Um, as far as where, where might we, I would just say to what degree um, might it make sense? So I think the biggest point of advice I'd give to a prospective purchaser is 
um, just to ensure that your structure does have enough actual cash equity coming into a deal. Um, from a lender perspective, if I'm looking to see 40 to 50% of equity in a leveraged buyout, then I'd want to see likely 20 to 25% of that to be cash equity coming from the purchaser. Um, and then that's assuming that, of course, that the, uh, the remainder that that VTB is structured very much equity-like um, and, and your lender would be able to explain to you what types of terms um, would be required to make it equity-like. Um, and then I think just as, as I'm sure you're aware, just is the vendor uh, take back the right avenue? Um, obviously, each scenario is unique. So does it make sense to be a, a VTB, a holdback, an earnout? Um, maybe even a revenue out. Um, maybe it's just a matter of continuing to do what you've done before and, and you just want to see that that continues. Um, I, I think uh, any of those would make sense and, and be viewed as positives for uh, for a lender. How about um, fixed versus floating rate debt? I mean, this is kind of the, the uh, proverbial question in a way, but I want to talk about that decision specific to this market. So those who are raising debt to finance... Uh, an acquisition, you know, CEOs who are running company who are looking to raise debt to grow their business or refinance or whatever the case may be, how should they think about uh, the question of fixed versus floating rate debt, and what like what variables might they consider in navigating this decision? Yeah, I, th I think that's right because it's it's not something that we've discussed a ton of uh, prior to this timing. So the, the timing, of course, makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the best way to understand this or to be comfortable, it really comes down to that risk tolerance of um, the individual who's buying it and what that business itself can handle. Um, unless your company is you know, a, a financing intermediary, I, I don't really think that interest rates are something that you're in the business of wanting to deal with. So some degree of hedging likely does make sense. Um, to what degree? I think that's your comfort as well as um, just does this company have a whole lot of other external shocks um, or outside variables that might affect its cash flow? So I, I think if there are a number of them, then maybe locking in more of your debt might make sense so that you can control that debt burden. Um, and then I guess just does it make sense, maybe Steve, just to, to mention the difference between a, a fixed rate loan or a, an interest rate swap or, or leave that for, for further discussion? No, let's do it. No, let's do it. Okay. So yeah, I think... Um, the, the main thing in that that I think of is in this in the upper mid market, you'll often see that lenders are willing to give you tiered pricing. And if you're buying a company in a, in a leveraged manner, obviously, obviously, that's the spot in time where you're going to have some of the highest debt load that you would have. You're probably higher levered, which means you're at a higher pricing tier. If you lock in a fixed rate today at the time that you're doing this, you might find that you're locking in with the highest spreads that you would have had. So great, you're locking in and, and you're protecting yourself. But um, if you consider an interest rate swap, that swap gets, uh, it's a floating swap for fixed prior to the spread coming on. So there's a way to control uh, some of your comfort against the, um, uh, the underlying. However, uh, it allows you to then benefit from the tiered pricing um, that you would have had if, if you bring your leverage down, your, overall amount that you're going to be paying can come down. Now, obviously, there's there's some open risk to that too, because you have another um, 2008 and, and that can be impacted. Um, but if you're if you're fixing things in, you're, you're likely, as long as you're inside of all your covenants, you're going to have um, the spreads locked in as well for, for your commitment period. I want to ask you guys a few questions about your credit committee. Um, and before I do that, um, Corey, maybe I can go to you on this one. 
For those listeners who might not be aware, can you explain what is a credit committee? What do they do? And how does you know their work interface with, let's say, the work that you and your teams do every day? Let's start there, and then I'll, I'll ask you a few questions about them. Yeah, great question, Steve. So um, chances are your listeners, when they interact with the bank, they're dealing with an account manager, a relationship manager, uh, and the infrastructure that may exist, quote unquote, out in the field. These are the people responsible um, for developing business, for relationship management of our, our existing portfolio. Um, oftentimes, there will be credit limits residing uh, on the front lines, i.e. that relationship manager or their boss um, would work closely with a credit manager side by side that may have the ability to sign off on a certain level of transactions. For anything more material, I'm talking, uh, say, three to $5 million and above, um, my guess is that those credit limits only reside centrally in a credit risk management or a group risk management. Um, so their job at group risk management is to be arm's length, is to be um, independent um, from the field or more independent from the field than um, uh, your relationship manager or your account manager. Um, so they have higher limits, but they also um, have um, accountability to the shareholders. So the best risk managers, um, somebody once told me, risk management isn't about saying no. It's about working with the company, understanding the risk to get to the right place and make the right decision for the bank. So hopefully that answers your question, but the best relationships with the best risk managers involve constant dialogue between the front lines and uh, group risk management. So specific to that credit committee, um, I'm curious, um, when you guys approach them with any given opportunity, are there any questions that maybe they're asking you now that they weren't asking you 12 months ago, or maybe are there any questions that they're asking more frequently today than they sure. were 12 months ago? Yeah. Yeah. Great for you to highlight this for your listeners, uh, Steve. Um, we've always done um, say interest rate sensitivity, foreign exchange sensitivity, depending on the business. We, we ask um, uh, foundational questions around financial risk, business risk, um, None of that has really changed, but given this environment, we've really keyed in on some of these key risk factors that are especially pre uh, present in, in today's market. And the most obvious example then is uh, interest rates. While we did interest rate seven sensitivity two years ago, I don't think any of us could have seen a 400 basis points rise in interest rates coming. So some of that sensitivity that we did is probably not current. So our committee is asking us to really double down and understanding on um, what our customers' exposures to rising interest rates are. How have they protected themselves? How have they hedged themselves? I'd also say the same for supply chain. And the last two years has um, uh, made us aware of something that uh, maybe wasn't um, tops on the agenda uh, when doing our risk assessment um, uh, previously. Uh, it's the supply chain uh, of our customers and how the disruption that we've seen in the last couple of years can impact their ability to do business. Mm -hmm. So we really keyed in on that. Uh, lastly, the, uh, the third point I'd make here, Steve, is labor shortages. Really, really tight 
labor market here uh, in Canada, in North America. So um, we're asking those questions regularly of our customers to make sure that they've got a plan uh, that, that they're protected from what is an exceptionally tight labor market, even to this day. That's really interesting. So are there any um, industries or business models that your credit committee would have funded 12 months ago, but are no longer willing to fund today? Like, I'm just trying to think of an example. So for example, inflation um, brings to mind the question of pricing power, right? Can any given company pass through price increases to their customer base, you know, in a reasonably low friction way? If the answer is yes, great. They can at least maintain margins. If the answer is no, then you know you can make a reasonable case that margins are likely to erode. Any anything like that? Any businesses or industries or pricing models or anything like that that they might have would have happily funded twelve months ago that are you know being met with a lot more skepticism today? Yeah, good question, Steve. I I thought about this one, and um, the most obvious example. I'm not a real estate lender per se. Um, uh, but the most obvious example, we've all read the headlines, we've all seen the data, what's happening in the real estate market, anything related to real estate might mm. get an extra degree of scrutiny. But for operating businesses, even for the riskiest of industries, we always took the position that we'll bank the best companies in the riskiest of industries, right? If we're comf comfortable with management, if they've set their company up right, then they should be able to withstand these downturns. And hopefully they've been um, getting the right reception from their lenders, even as we enter in, or we could potentially head into a recession here. But outside of real estate, um, we haven't seen it yet. Um, Steve, that would, um, I don't think would be worth commenting on. Um, one thing that uh, first time borrowers might not appreciate is that the first term sheet that they get from a bank, let's say from a relationship manager, is of course the bank's best estimate in good faith with respect to what can get funded on closing date. But what first time borrowers don't necessarily appreciate is that sometimes those term sheets change and sometimes that changes the result of the credit committee. Um, so I guess in your experience, just to calibrate expectations for first-time borrowers who have never done this before, like what percentage of deals get final approval from the, the credit committee on the exact same terms as were reflected in the term sheet? And I guess part B to that question is, um, how can borrowers get as certain as they can possibly get that the term sheet that they quote sign off on will not materially change after getting final sign off from any given bank's credit committee? Uh, great for you to bring this insight to your listeners. Um, I know this one, if I was an entrepreneur, uh, this one would keep me up at night. And, and, and I'd also say that this is, a, a, this is something we as lenders sweat um, to a great degree. Nobody wants a reputation of, um, say, baiting and switching or um, showing something on paper that we ultimately can't deliver on at the last minute, Steve. So, so you're right to raise this. Um, what percentage? Uh, I mean, I hate to take the easy way out here, but it, it would depend. Um, if it's a really complex deal, um, and by that I mean um, multiple lenders, multiple shareholders, um, bigger dollar amount, um, less asset cover, less security for the bank, 
you could always expect some degree of um, what I would call tweaks around the edges with your um, with your final approval. Keep in mind a term sheet, even the most detailed of term sheets would only be five pages long. Uh, whereas your credit agreement, if this is a really big deal, it could it could be up to I don't know, 40 or 50 pages, right? So there's going to be some tweaks around the edges that might not have been previewed with um, it, with a term sheet. Having said that, if there are substantial changes between the final credit agreement and the term sheet, that is something that everybody's looking to avoid. And really, it's only in, in an exceptional circumstance that an experienced lender is having to deliver a, a nightmare scenario like that to the customer at, at, um, at closing. So I would say, uh, especially with the backdrop of the, the strong, strong economy that we've had, that that hopefully is um, a, a very exceptional circumstance. The latter part of your question, what can an entrepreneur do to avoid that? I'd say that upfront and early due diligence of your lender is so key. If you sit across the table from your banker, you will know in your gut if they're asking the right questions, if they're understanding your business, if they've got experience in your industry, are you confident that they understand enough to convey the story, to convey your quest and to convey the risks of your business through to their credit committee? If you're getting a little bit uneasy about um, the tone of the conversation or um, how they may have gapped in some of their more foundational due diligence, then I'd wanna escalate that. Um, ask to, to meet the senior management of the branch, ask to meet a credit manager, ask to speak, uh, ask to understand the reporting structure of your lender. Um, again, I, I have the pleasure of leading an office of 58 people. It is my job to understand and onboard new customers to the bank. There's no deal, no new piece of business that's too small for my involvement, really. So if you're if you're getting that uneasy feeling, make sure you're escalating and getting in front of the, the right senior people that really hold the pen on um, these ultimate decisions to make sure you get that sense of comfort from your bank. Does... Any given lender approach their credit committee at a very specific time. So for example, let's say that we have a transaction, we think that it's going to close on December 31st. Does the average lender say, okay, we always go to our credit committee for final approval um, X weeks before the contemplated closing date? The reason why I asked that question is because I'm trying to figure out is it fair for a prospective borrower who might be losing sleep about a, a retrade, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Is it reasonable for them to go to their lender and say, hey, I want you to bring this to your credit committee X weeks before you ordinarily would just because I want that peace of mind? Is that a fair request? It is um, It is a fair request, Steve, um, but keep in mind um, a credit committee at that term sheet stage may not have all the information required to make that final decision, right? So this is where you really need to lean on the experience and the expertise of that relationship manager, of that account manager that's on that other side of the table. If they're nervous about ultimately delivering a, a, a what's on paper there, then hopefully they've recognized that and have brought the appropriate parties to the table. I've had prospective customers ask me not only for an introduction to 
um, my boss um, or a credit manager, but also ask me for references um, from other customers in similar industries or in similar types of transactions. So no question is unfair of you to your lender. Um, the ultimate goal here is to get you that satisfaction, that confidence that that lender can deliver on uh, on the term chain. You know, it's funny. I uh, polled some of our listeners um, before this conversation and asked them, you know, what do you want me to ask an experienced lower mid market lender? And it was very interesting to note the answer that I got back most frequently had to do with tripping covenants. So let's talk about that. Um, when a borrower trips a covenant or they suspect you know, they might trip a covenant at, at some point in the near future, um, first of all, like what happens? What actually happens when a borrower trips a covenant? Let's talk about that. And then um, what should they do if they suspect that in X weeks or months, you know, they, they might trip the covenant. So maybe we can just kind of take those in order. Sure. Sure. So I'll take this one, Steve. Um, what happens? So chances are when you trip a covenant, um, it will be flagged by us when you submit your annual reporting, your quarter reporting, your whatever the reporting package is, we will do the work internally here and it'll ultimately end up on a credit manager's desk as being in breach uh, of your contract with the bank. What happens from there, again, will depend on the severity of the breach, um, your track record with the lender, our relationship with you. So all those things really matter. So what advice would I give to a customer of mine or a listener of yours, Steve? Open lines of communication are so key. When, when you think about financial reporting, it's, it's a snapshot in time, um, most often uh, well in the rearview mirror. So it's 90 days old. It's 180 days old in some cases. A lender never likes to be surprised. And that's a tough position for you as an entrepreneur to walk back from if you're hitting your banker with uh, a surprise to the downside, um, uh, especially in a material respect, right? So my, my number one piece of advice is open lines of communication are so key. If you're in danger of gapping on a covenant, let me know. Let me know as soon as possible. Um, even if you're not sure, like just, just that, e even that messaging that you send to your lender that I respect my bank deal. You can have confidence in me that I'm I'm aware of the terms and conditions of my bank deal. That goes a long way with a lender and uh, the credit committee. Here's somebody that really respects the contract I've got with them. The more notice I have, the better. As for everybody races to the doomsday scenario. Well, if I breach this covenant, is the bank going to call me call my loan? Are they going to kick me out? Keep in mind. I'm incented to retain you as a customer. I want your business. I, chances are I fought hard for your business. I had to compete against other lenders. I want to retain you as a customer. So it's really easy for you to keep a good relationship with me if those open lines of communication are there. It also really helps if you have a, a contingency plan. Depending on the severity of the breach, I'm going to want to sit down and work with you on how to get you back on site. So, okay, you've you've missed 
um, your leverage covenant today? What does the next quarter look like? What does the next six months look like? What is your plan to get back on track? Let's understand what the risks are to that plan and let's work together on it. Because the more I can articulate with, with some efficiency to our credit committee, your plan to get back on track. Again, that signals to your lender, your bank, that you're all over this. You're a capable operator and you're, again, taking your bank's wishes into consideration. Yeah. I think that's, that pretty much covers it, Steve, but feel free to dive deeper there. Well, you know, what's really interesting is in your answer, you kind of highlighted in a way um, what makes a good borrower, right? And certainly communication, um, you know, like anything, good communication, a clear action plan, a clear indication that you're on top of things. Those are intuitive, I think, for all the best reasons. So those are maybe some of the things that make a good borrower, so to speak. And if I've missed anything, certainly feel free to, to fill that in. Uh, maybe the inverse of that question is what makes a good lender? And um, I'm specifically asking that question in the context of the competitive environment that you highlighted um, a couple minutes ago, where the average borrower, you know, financing a lower middle market transaction or maybe just financing their business on an ongoing basis is choosing between two to three to four lenders. So if you haven't actually worked with these people, you don't have the benefit of knowing them at an intimate level, you know, beyond the interest rate that they offer. Like, how should a borrower think about what makes a good lending partner and how should they choose between the two to three to four term sheets that are presumably more similar than they are different? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great, Steve. Um, it, let's, let's be clear. So much of what Tim and I do in the day-to-day -day is commodity-like. No matter the color of the, the bank that you deal with, um, chances are they have roughly the same app risk appetite, roughly the same policies, products, et cetera. Like these, um, especially in Canada, there's really not a whole bunch that separates us when it comes down to credit policy and, and, and products. So in my mind, if I'm talking to a junior lender, we're talking about our value proposition. Like what can differentiate you from um, the lender uh, across the street working for the other bank? And for your listeners, Steve, I'd say, it comes down to personal relationship, right? So again, do they understand your business? Does your lender understand your industry? What experience do they have in your industry? How is the office set up? How is it structured? How is that team set up that's going to work with you in the day-to-day? -day? And by that, I mean, like who's, who's in charge of the day-to-day -day, uh, admin that will surely come with that relationship? So I'm talking about opening bank accounts, statements, any inquiries related to your accounts. How about cash management too? How is that department set up? How do they work hand-in-hand -hand with the lender? Because credit, while you may, well, credit is, is the most likely door opener for a new customer to come and bank with me. They all need bank accounts. They all need some level of cash management and electronic banking. They also, Tim highlighted uh, interest rate hedges earlier. Like these are all, they might be considered ancillary or secondary to the initial reason why you're looking or approaching uh, a new bank, but they're all very important. So how does that team work together? I'd also take it one step further to say, how are they set up to do your personal banking? Like, have they introduced you to their wealth or their private banking department um, that can look after your family's personal banking needs too? And this is how we set ourselves up, Steve, to tackle this exact question that you asked me. How can we be the face of our bank 
to the customer and provide them everything they need, um, not only business, but personal, their family needs as well. You mentioned some industry-specific considerations, and that's where I want to go next. Um, and I, I specifically want to ask you guys about lending to software or technology businesses more broadly. Um, I mean, that's that's close to my heart because I, I purchased and ran a software business myself. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, has your view on lending to these types of companies, whether it's on an ongoing basis or to finance the acquisition of one of these businesses, has it changed over the past, you know, one, three or five years? Because, you know, when I was raising money for my deal, this was 10 years ago, um, you know, it, it was asset light, it, you know, maybe high revenue growth rate, but not a lot of EBITDA. And as a result of the combination of not a lot of EBITDA and not a lot of assets, bankers, you know, sometimes shied away from, from those types of businesses. But, you know, every year, every month, frankly, every day that passes, these types of businesses are representing a larger and larger percentage of our economy. And by extension, I suspect a larger percentage of any given lender's book. So, I mean, how do you guys think about lending to these types of businesses? How do you think about their asset light nature and as a result, their lack of collateral relative to a more like industrial business? And has your risk appetite changed with respect to lending to these companies relative to a handful of years ago? Yeah, obviously your experience there shows because I, th I think you're right to delineate between um, the ongoing nature, the, acquis uh, the acquisition nature of this, Steve. Um, we're definitely continuing to lend to them um, ourselves. Um, this is something I think like my view on that. Um, we've seen this as an area, as you said, of, of tremendous growth. Um, we're trying to build up an advisory team um, that can cover knowledge-based industries or tech deals. I know um, a lot of our competition um, has that as well. Um, so you're really trying to, to get some, uh, some good minds, some good industry, um, uh, some good industry individuals, people who have had experience in this that can help us understand why that revenue might be recurring. So if I think of this from uh, the operational side of things, um, we get a lot of help just to make sure that we can understand exactly what's going on with that recurring uh, revenue. I know that the industry really does look to more of a monthly recurring revenue. Uh, that's something we do as well. Um, so you're lending on a revolving basis against a, a monthly multiple of uh or sorry, a, a multiple of a monthly recurring revenue. Um, we've set guidelines for this in the past couple of years that I don't think have really been changing other than just trying to do more of it. So I don't think there's been a lot of change in how we look at that. Again, it comes back to something I said earlier. It's more about understanding how um, the company is, is doing in that respect, like the background behind it, more of the qualitative than the quantitative structure. And then on the acquisition side, um, it's not all that different from what we were talking about before. Um, a lot of acquisition financing really is against goodwill. So it's um, it's less about what are the hard assets behind this company. And it really does come down to why am I comfortable that this company can continue to uh, generate that revenue or, or generate that EBITDA. And I don't think there's been a lot of change there. I mean, potentially there's been some changes in the multiple that people are willing to pay for tech companies right now. And so that can play into it. But no, I don't think there's a lot of concern. I think it's what you said as far as we know that there is a big market out there. And I think all lenders are, are looking to chase these deals. Guys, as we conclude here, are there any requests of the audience, things that you would scream from the proverbial mountaintop if given the opportunity to communicate to every you know lower mid-market acquisition entrepreneur, any thoughts or perspectives or anything else that you'd like to 
leave them with as we conclude our discussion today? I don't think so, Steve. I think we've hit on uh, all the right notes. Your your questions here were um, were very appropriate. Um, I guess if I leave them with one thing, it's just open up those lines of communication, right? Uh, especially as we enter uh, a period of uncertainty uh, in 23. Um, talk to your banker, uh, make them aware of what you're up to just to avoid those, um, those surprises. Awesome. I would agree. Yep. Corey and Tim, Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insights and uh, we appreciate you being generous with your time. Thanks, Steve. This was fun. Yeah, great. Thanks for having us.